0: This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, I'm going to make you guess who we may have. We have a fabulous guest. Okay, he's been on Dreamland 17 times, starting in 2005, and he doesn't look a day older, as you shall see, shortly. He writes about the ancient world and ancient mysteries and is conceivably one of the all time great authors in this field. Uh, he has, you find him on uh playing things like the unexplained, the William Shatner unexplained. He's been on uh, ancient aliens m- many times. He's been on Gaia TV's Ancient Civilizations in Deep Space. He comes to us from England, and his name is Andrew Collins. Andrew, welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to have you back. Whitley, it's uh, great to
1: be back uh, to hear I've been on here 17 times. Makes you think about whatever it was that I was actually talking about. But as long as uh, it was enlightening and entertaining people,
0: then that's all good. Well, I do know what you were talking about. And of course, I'm going to ask you questions about it that you will have f- forgotten. <laughs> I, I won't do that. No. Uh, but you know, it, b- before we're going to talk today, folks, I have to tell you, we're going back to a place we've been with Andrew just a few times over the years ancient Egypt. But we're going back in search of feminine power, which has been suppressed. I'm going to say a word now, and you will, ne- I bet you, not one of you will ever have heard this word before. Sobek Neferu. Sobek Neferu. That's who we're going to be talking about. A remarkable and powerful, forgotten female pharaoh who has had an extraordinary influence on the modern world despite being stamped out by the patriarchy despite this and the women are coming back the age of aquarius is starting so it's time to rebuild the history of mankind in the context of the feminine influence from the very beginning and that's the uh, Andrew's new book is called The First Female Pharaoh, Sobekneferu, Neferu, Goddess of the Seven Stars. And we're going to range all over the place because I've got this guy here, Andrew Collins, who's an expert on Go- Gobekli Tepe, who did many classic dreamlands, including one about the Cygnus mystery that blew my mind and will blow yours, the Cygnus meditation in the meditation group in the subscriber area remains to this day one of the most popular and powerful meditations I've ever created. It was created out of Andrew's ideas. In fact, maybe before we get to Sobek Neferu, let's just revisit a few things, Andrew. Let's revisit. First, let's revisit Cygnus. What was the Cygnus mystery? Well, the Cygnus mystery for
1: me began at Gobekli tepe uh, back in 2004. Um, I visited the site. It had been discovered about 10 years earlier and had only been um, made known to the public in the year 2000. And I managed to get there four years later. Um, and I mean, you've got to bear in mind that at this time, nobody was focusing their attentions at all um, on Southeast Anatolia, modern day Turkey. You know, none of my contemporaries were doing work there other Than Adrian Gilbert, I have to give him credit for the fact that you know that he uh, was onto this area. He did a book called The May Guy, which was a really good book. Um, But at the same time, um, I was focusing on the fact that there was um, the origins of civilization in this region, and that I'd looked at the stories of the Anunnaki of Sumerian tradition, um, and also the Watchers and Nephilim the human angels of Hebrew myth and legend. And I'd worked out that these were associated with flesh and blood human beings. They were not space beings in my opinion, um, but that they lived in the area of Southeastern Anatolia and that they were said to have given the rudiments of civilization to humankind. And I looked at the archaeological evidence available back then and concluded that we had to be looking at some kind of ground zero to the west of Lake Varn, somewhere probably, I suggested, in the area of Diyarbakar, which is a huge city uh, west of uh, Lake varn um, And that was essentially the premise of a book that I wrote called From the Ashes of Angels that came out in 1996. And... At the same time, um, the book was obviously being taken up and published in other territories, and one of those territories was in Turkey. Uh, it finally came out there in 2002, and everybody loved it over there. They brought me over there, and I said that as part of the deal, could I go to the places that I write about? And this obviously included Göbekli Tepe. And we said, yeah, we'll give you a driver, we'll give you uh, an interpreter, so for a week, I went around all these incredible sites, many of which I'd never been to. Well, not all of which I'd never been to before, but most of which I'd written about. And one of them was Gobekli Tepe. And of course, when I got there, it just blew my mind. I mean, I had no way of comparing, comparing it with anything else in the ancient world. The closest that I could really compare it with was with various structures in South America and Central America, um, the type of carving, the type of relief, the type of very abstract um, animal um, imagery that, that that you could see. And it almost had the same feel, which in some ways was quite eerie and a little bit sinister in a way, because, you know, it sort of suggested that similar sort of practices and beliefs that were going on in South America and Central America, which we know involved, you know, some very heavy sacrifices and rituals could have been going on in southeastern Anatolia but that was purely what was going in my head that's not archaeological evidence but so the thing is is that I came away from there back to the UK and I couldn't get this, this out of my head I mean it was like you know this was a mystery that just had to be solved and so I started to look into the directionality of the uh, the enclosures that have been in, uncovered. And I realised that they face the north, not the south, as some of my colleagues um, you know, would later claim. And I started to line them up with the stars of the northern sky. And I realised that all of them seem to be pointing to the same star. But over a series of a few hundred years, because through the process of precession, this is the actual wobble of the earth, Um, it moves the position that stars rise and set. And it would seem as if these temples were focused on one particular star, and this was Deneb in the constellation of Cygnus. Now, you might say, well, why is that important? Well, firstly, it is prominently positioned on the Milky Way, um, right where the Milky Way splits in two. And many ancient cultures believed that this was the entrance into the afterlife. Um, and the 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 dark area that that ran up to the area of Deneb and the rest of the constellation of Cygnus, which is the celestial bird, um, often the swan, but in the Middle East it was the vulture. Um, that this was seen as the road or river into which you access this other world, and. Once I realized this, I, I then just started scribbling down for, for hours about the possibility that here at Gobekli Tepe was evidence of this incredible death journey involved, uh, involving not only people who you know clearly had died, but also the shamans, the shamans in death trances who wanted to enter into the other world. Um, and so this, these ideas eventually ended up in a book called The Cygnus Mystery, which is one of the reasons why I obviously came on to your show and we talked about this. And, you know, as you say, it blew your mind. So that, that was the the, the background story, but quite clearly that wasn't the end because I started to realize that many other ancient monuments around the world were also aligned to the same constellation um, for the very same reasons that it was the point of entry into the afterlife. And that, you know, I even found it in connection with the, the Great Pyramid and the other pyramids of Giza, um, although, of course, by this time, the Orion mystery had been published. Um, so, unfortunately, nobody's particularly interested in whoever comes in second, uh, only those <laughs> that, you know, propose a theory first, whether it's right or wrong. Um, but anyway, you know, these ideas to do with Gobekli Tepe in particular were verified by uh, two Italian um, scientists uh, years later um, who looked seriously into it and, at the, and actually started off by trying to, um, you know, put down my theories. Um, but no eventually they were shown to be true. But here's the other interesting thing: when I went there, um, a lot of the the enclosure D, which is the biggest and oldest enclosure there, had still to be excavated. You could see the heads of the stones, but most of their bases um, their stems were not visible and one of those stones is what is today known as the vulture stone pillar 43 and when that was uncovered it was realized that this was some kind of star map now this is probably universally accepted by all of my colleagues including Graham Hancock uh, and others but what I realized is that this was a star map towards Cygnus and that, that right in the middle of it was this huge great vulture in the exact shape of the Cygnus constellation and that the position of, of other um, sky figures around it, including a Scorpio representing um, the Scorpius, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the zodiacal constellation, all showed that this was a route to Cygnus via the Milky Way. Um, And this is something that's been universally accepted. Obviously, um, some of my colleagues, you know, want to look at Pillar 43 as um, recording the catastrophe that happened 10,800 BC. Um, I have no confidence in that theory whatsoever. Um, And I'm pretty certain, as a number of academics have, that Pillar 43 is a part of the death journey. It shows
0: the death journey to the stars. We're going to talk a little bit more about that journey uh, in just a moment. We'll be right back. We're talking to Andrew Collins, his new book, The First Female Pharaoh. And it is, we're going to get into it in very shortly. Uh, his website, andrewcollins.com. You can get his books through his website. and. Uh, We were talking just a moment ago about the death journey and what it means. And I want to go in a slightly different direction than is normal, because there are actually two death journeys. One of them involves the wheel of life. People return on the wheel of life. And the other, and this is the one I want to talk to you about, Involves escape from the wheel of life and the death journey to the stars. Tell us a little bit about what goes into enabling a person to go on that journey, which is the journey we want to go
1: on. Okay, well, um, there are perfect examples of this um, in Egypt, but the place that I'd like to focus on is in North America um, because. Obviously, there were thousands of ancient mound structures that covered the entire continent in the past. Um, And obviously, many of these have been destroyed today, but some beautiful examples still exist. uh, at Places like Hopewell uh, in Ohio and obviously Serpent Mound as well. Um, And these can tell us a hell of a lot about the beliefs of the Native American peoples you know thousands of years ago in fact all the way through until the time of discovery um when the first europeans would reach these places um and there are a lot of ethnologists that would talk to the um you know the existing uh, tribal peoples the first peoples of america uh, about their beliefs and practices and these were recorded and ignored let's point this out uh, for hundreds of years but basically many of them and we're talking possibly as many as 30 to 40 uh, tribes all had a very similar death journey and basically what this was is that at the point of death and remember this is the point of death not just simply for somebody that's passing into you know the next world in other words they're, they're dead but also the shamans who would enter into a death state they would make a leap of faith Towards a point of access onto the Milky Way, um, and that point of access was generally in the constellation of Orion, um, and it would generally be done at the time of the winter solstice. So, in other words, it was an alignment towards um, not just the Sun but also Orion as well, and the soul would, would would make that that leap, basically, and once they were on the Milky Way. They were then free to travel on their journey towards the ultimate destination, which is the place of the afterlife. Um, and they would encounter certain, um, you know, um, trials and tribulations along the way, which were probably represented by different sky figures um, made up of you know, constellations until they reached the portal, the gateway into the afterlife. And this was located in the constellation of Cygnus, Um, in particular the star Deneb and of course this is where the um, where the the, the Milky Way breaks into two um, to create what's known as the dark rift which is this dark area that goes right the way along the 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 center of the galactic plane from this point down to the area of Sagittarius and Scorpius uh, which also happens to be where the sun crosses the Milky Way in one of two places in the sky and when they reach this point, they meet an adjudicator, um, a judge over how righteous they've been during their life. Um, and in Native American tradition, often this was a bird man. So in other words, like a shaman dressed as a bird. Um, and basically, if the soul had been good, they would be allowed to enter the next world, which was beyond sickness beyond that so in other words they would exit out of this physical plane whereas if the soul had been bad during life then it would be forced to continue along the milky way and be gobbled up by a monster represented by the constellation of scorpius Uh, and this was seen in terms of this um, serpent like creature Um, That was represented by the stars of Scorpius, and the only other option was to be reincarnated, so it would continue, as I said, along the Milky Way until it could, you know, come out via the area of Scorpius and Sagittarius and come back into physical existence. So it was a wheel of life, but that wheel was actually the Milky Way itself, and I think that that is a very old idea, and it's one of the reasons why. The wheel symbolism was used in the first place. So once again, here we see the importance of these different constellations of Cygnus as the gateway into the afterlife of Orion as the place of access onto the Milky Way and of Scorpion. Sorry, Scorpius is the correct term as the monster that will gobble you up if you um, have been a bad person during your life. And part of this journey, of course, we find in ancient Egypt, because as we know, um, the pyramid texts tell us that the soul of a deceased person, a deceased pharaoh, who assumes the role of the god Osiris at death, will travel to Orion, and Orion was a god known as Sar or Sahu. And it was seen almost like the brother of Osiris. And the text actually says that when Osiris, as in the, the dead pharaoh, reaches Sa, Sa embraces Osiris and says, You know, welcome back, my brother, basically. And the pharaoh is then allowed to continue the journey on the Milky Way, which was known as the, the winding waterway, towards the afterlife in the northern part of the sky. Where he would find the womb of his mother. His mother was the goddess Nuit. She's that beautiful lady that's shown um, arched and naked over the earth in, in ancient Egyptian art. And she, she, she embraces, she embraces dying. the yes. Osiris when he returns. But what's important is that the womb of Nuit is the constellation of Cygnus. And it's in here. That the Pharaoh receives rebirth um, and is, you know, allowed to go into the afterlife.
0: So once rebirth again, into another situation. state of life, not not return to this life, but into a yeah. higher, more energetic state of being.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: That's in, and that's of course where most of the people who are watching this show would like to go because we're all aware that it really exists. Let me ask you. Uh, well, you know, in fact let's just take the second break and get rid of it and free dreamlanders please do subscribe to dreamland because it's I mean, an unknown country because it's really worth doing you're listening to this and enjoying this but it's costing money and the other sub the paying subscribers are helping me pay that money to make this happen so do that okay we'll be right back we're talking to andrew collins uh, Andrew Collins' website is andrewcollins.com. His new book, which we're going to get into very deeply very soon, The First Female Par- uh, Pharaoh, Sobekneferu, Neferu, Goddess of the Seven Stars. We'll be talking about exactly which stars they were and who she was and what happened to her. Before we go on, Andrew, I would like, and this is an outlier. you. My guess is you don't know anything about this. I know only hints. And that is that there is a, um, uh, I would call it a secret society. I don't know how old it is, but I think it really exists where people are in a ceremonial act of some kind. They are removed from their body by, by a, something that's done to the spine and it un, unlocks the second body from the first. And they remove from their body and they can take journeys to Orion by going in the non-physical second body state to the Great Pyramid, which then accelerates their souls. Have you ever heard of something like that still existing or not? Uh, certainly, I've not heard of, of that, to be honest. Um, me neither. I mean, I've the,
1: I've heard whispers of yeah, it. Let me put it yeah, that but, way. But the one thing I will say is that, you know, the concept of being able to remove the astral body from the um, the physical body by some kind of uh, ceremonial act, I think is probably real. And I'll give you a little story if I might. I went out with a, a, a wonderful lady who I lived with for five years named Debbie, who's still a very good friend of mine today. And she could actually astrally project on a regular basis. I mean, virtually every night. Um, she would even go into other people's dreams. Um, and I said to her, I said, you know, would you try and take me with you one night? Uh, she says, yeah, sure. You know, I'll, I'll try and pull you out. Um, and on the first night, um, I slept and something happened during the night, but I actually sort of forgotten about it. And then when we woke up, I, I I said to her, "Well, what happened?" She said, "I tried to pull you out." She said, "Your your hand came up, and um, and I tried to sort of draw it up, but immediately it went down." And as soon as she said this, I remembered it. I thought, "Oh my God, I remember that." I said, "Please try it again tonight, but just try a little harder. See if you can pull my whole body out." So. That night, um, I was I was in bed. I was obviously going off to sleep. I was in, you know, perhaps a, a non-REM or REM sleep. I can't remember. And suddenly, I found myself out of the body, going up the wall, round the ceiling, down the other wall, and back into my physical body. And obviously, I went back to sleep eventually, woke up, and I said to Debbie, I said, you know, what happened last night, she said, I pulled you out, but you went straight back into your body. Now, that to me, proved something, it proved that our ideas relating to astral projection are real, and that clearly, there are techniques to be able to do this. So this is a secret society that you mentioned, as I say, I'm not aware of them,
0: but I can understand that it is
1: possible to do what they state.
0: Well, if anyone out there, folks, is aware of this group still existing, let me know because I think it it existed as recently as the late nineteenth century and may still exist. Uh, we touched on a few minutes ago the uh, methods of or what happens to souls, and you laid out three things very clearly. Now. The ancient Egyptians, of course, have a famous story that uh, the soul is weighed against a feather. And if it is lighter than the feather, it will ascend. Otherwise, it it will not. And you described exactly what I've ascertained from my own experiences with the dead and with the visitors, that there are souls that are too heavy, essentially, to save. And they they're in the egyptian tradition they're eaten by this monster they're eaten all right but it's not quite the same as it they're, they're destroyed let me put it that way as my wife said there's don't think about them just forget them uh and uh then there are those who go on this journey of rediscovery of essentially the need to return to life and to this life but then there are those who are lighter than a feather and those were really interested in the egyptians offered the 42 laws of ma'at uh, are you familiar you're familiar with those i'm sure
1: um, the, uh the, well the, the, basically i don't know where they like they come from are these hacking are, are,
0: are yeah, yeah like, they're basically if you can uh, imagine the ten commandments expanded into 42 admonitions that's what it is right and in the egyptian tradition if you followed the 42 laws of ma'at you would uh you would ascend in other words it's a matter of lightness of being of not being identified with the things of the world and so many different traditions offer paths along this line. So I'm just saying this, folks, because I know it's in a lot of your heads and it's certainly in mine. Okay, well, let's go on. It's time to start talking about this wonderful, extraordinary woman I had heard nothing whatsoever about until this book came floating into my life. Uh, the first female pharaoh. Tell us a little bit about Sobekneferu this extraordinary yeah. sacred being yeah um okay well firstly if you
1: look in any book on egyptology you're probably going to get a couple of pages on her you know when i'm talking about you know a book i'm talking about a book on pharaohs um because to be honest most egyptologists consider there's not an awful lot about known about her but i challenge that by yeah, pulling together every single piece of evidence from inscriptions, from monuments, um, from historical traditions—not only in Egypt but also in um, Coptic, Arabic, and Greek um, traditions—that all very clearly talk about her. Um, and basically, this is her story. I mean, she was um, born during what's known as the Twelfth Dynasty, uh, which formed part of the middle kingdom uh, towards the end of the both of these periods the the dynasty and the the, um, the kingdom itself she was the daughter of a very successful king named Amun-Emet III, Um, and she was probably third in line so she was never expected uh, to you know race to the position of Pharaoh in front of her was her younger, let's point this out, younger brother, um, who would become the IV, and also a sister by the name of Nefertar. And the father decided that he would put the sister on the throne alongside the younger brother, because quite clearly he was, he was too young to rule on his own. Um, and Nefertar was even allowed to put her name inside a royal cartouche, which is these oval shapes. In which you are allowed to put your your name, um, and then tragedy occurred. Nefertar died unexpectedly. Um, whether she was uh, whether she died you know through an accident, natural causes, or was murdered, we can't say. Although I do speculate in the book, uh, and so Amenemhet the fourth, the son, ruled the country on his own, but seemingly unofficially with his sister who probably was just a couple of years older than him and her name was sobek neferu and it was seen that for the first few years um, they ruled um virtually as man and wife um and were very close i think that you know they they you know they they yeah they thought the same way together and they even started building two pyramids one each one side by side at a place called Mazguna Um, but then something happened Um, it would seem as if brother and sister fell out and that the young Amanemet the fourth was being influenced probably by old retainers from his father Um, and they were pulling the country in a certain direction and that direction involved um, an open borders policy allowing um, the Canaanite peoples um, from the Levant to entering in large numbers. And this is something that had started with uh, their father, Amenemet the III, and possibly even um, their grandfather, whose name was Senosret III. Um, but it was something that was accelerated during the reign of amun the IV. Uh, he also started turning away from the traditional values of this particular dynasty, that had been focused their intentions on the area known as um, the Fayum, which is about 65 miles to the southwest of Cairo. It's this is huge, beautiful o- oasis area that was also seen as a place of the ancestors. And what happened was that that certain, um, let's say, nationalists, Egyptian nationalists, I think, were becoming very worried that the country would be overtaken and eventually fall. And to be honest, they were absolutely correct, because within two to three generations, the Egypt essentially collapsed into what was known as the Second Intermediate Period. Uh, And this was a dark age, a severe dark age of Egyptian history. However, what had happened was that I think that they went to Sobek Nofru Re um, and basically said to her, look, you know, we will support your claim to the throne, providing you support us in getting rid of your brother because he's taking the country down the wrong course. And she basically said yes. And so the brother was got rid of, he was murdered and she ruled on her own for four years. Now, obviously all this sounds quite harsh, but just think of game of Thrones, like intrigue. Um, And, what she did was to change all the policies again. She closed the borders. She stopped trading with the Sinai and Canaan, somewhere that she, I think she herself had connections with, but that's all in the book. And she also stamped down her authority in the area where uh, most of the Canaanites were, which was in the Nile Delta. In other words, she basically said, look, I'm in charge. You know, um, you know, uh, this is this is my rule. Now you're going to do what I what I say. Now this might all sound harsh, but what she also did was to initiate a new dynasty, a dynasty that would become known as the 13th, which was founded by two sons who would rule one after the other, who were possibly the sons of her brother. Now they may even have been her sons as well, but we don't know. But they almost certainly were linked to her brother because both of them took the name Amenemet um, you know as far as their their ruling names are concerned and that shows the allegiance to the the outgoing dynasty and what happened was that uh, these warlords came in from Canaan known as the Hyksos or Shepherd Kings completely trashed Egypt forced this dynasty to the south of the country set up their own dynasty which uh, eventually would be come known as the 15th, the 14th, was a Canaanite-based dynasty that ran that ruled from the Nile Delta. And eventually the the members of this nationalistic 13th dynasty would rise up eventually and get rid of these warlords and send them packing back into Canaan. Um and the two people that were involved with this who led the armies, one was known as Kumers who was uh, a king of the 17th dynasty and eventually his uh, brother would rule as the first king of the 18th dynasty, which also marked the beginning of the new kingdom and the end of this very dark age known as the second intermediate period. And so without what Sobek Nofru had done, then the country almost certainly would have fallen because it would never have been strong enough to rise up against these incoming peoples, um, who, as I said, completely took over the country. And the chances are that Egypt would have become just another um, city-state forming part of Canaan, um, and we wouldn't really know much about it. And all of the great kings of the new kingdom, such as Ramesses, um, Tutmosis, Akhenaten, Nefertiti, Hapset, Schutz, SETI, etc., 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 would never have existed. And I think that there would have been an impact on the outside world also. You know, I mean, to start off with, we wouldn't have had Art Deco, because if we hadn't found Tutankhamun's tomb, Art Deco wouldn't have existed in the 1920s. So uh, that's one thing. But I'm sure that there was a massive impact. But what happened to Sobek Nofru? She was considered to have started this time of trouble and her name was suppressed and struck off certain king lists thereafter and her deeds were uh, completely forgotten and she herself, it would seem, eventually committed suicide um, having fulfilled what she believed to be her role in restoring Mart, you know, which is divine order through, you know, truth and justice. And I think that there were people that were coming for her, almost certainly rival um, priesthoods who did not like what she was doing, were supportive of these uh, incoming Canaanite peoples. Um, And I put the finger on the, um, the temple of Ra at Heliopolis that was very strongly connected with the Canaanite. Um, peoples at the time Um, and I think that she knew that her time was up and that she had to get out and I think that in exactly the same way as Cleopatra uh, committed suicide um, so did Sobek Nofru and I think that they probably both went out the same way which was a ritual death almost certainly using hallucinogens that would basically just allow them to walk into the afterlife.
0: That's really fascinating. It reminds me of uh, Lawrence Gardner's assertion that uh, that white powder gold was used by the pharaohs uh, to see the future. And, of course, there is the, uh, is it at Dendera, that strange um, bas-relief on one of the rafters that appears to be uh, things from our period? A, a uh, tank and so Abidos. forth. Abidos, yeah. Yes. So maybe there's something there. Maybe she she was enacting a life that had already been planned out at that point. Maybe well, she was in, in, and it was not a suicide, but an intentional leaving. In, in other words, something beyond what we call suicide, and beyond what we think of as death. I would say an intentional departure from the physical.
1: Yeah. I mean, here's the interesting thing is that we all know Sobek Nofru, but not through the name that's used here. I was Um, just going to
0: ask you about, about
1: this. Go ahead. Well, I mean, because what happened was that because um, her life was suppressed when uh, the earliest Egyptologists started uncovering the temples of Egypt in the nineteenth century, and they started coming across her name on stone blocks, and obviously in inscriptions, and that particularly in the area of uh, the Feil, um, and this incredible monument known as the uh, the Egyptian Labyrinth, which she almost certainly uh, created alongside her father, um, Egyptologists speculated and wondered who the hell this woman was i mean she was obviously a pharaoh because she had all of the royal titles she um you know she she was clearly a, a, a you know a, a female king if you like of of upper and lower egypt but why don't we know about her um they started to speculate that her religion was unique um she venerated the crocodile god sobek and from my own research, um, the mother of Sobek, who was uh, Neith, a very, very ancient goddess called Neith. Um, and these were sky uh, figures in the northern part of the sky that occupy the area of the constellations of Ursa Major, which is where the seven stars thing comes from, uh, Ursa Minor, and also, and in particular, Draco. And in fact, monuments that um, are known to be associated with Sobek Nofru, uh, particularly her pyramid at Mezguna, but also a very strange megalithic temple at a place called Kaza El Saga in the northern Fayum, are uh, both aligned to the setting of a bright orange star in the constellation of Draco by the name of Eltenan, uh, which also would appear to have been known as the Eye of Sobek. In other words, it was like a, a, you know, a central focus of this sky figure, and it would seem that that was her interest. That's where she saw the afterlife as being associated with. Um, but what's interesting is that that the nineteenth-century Egyptologist started to speculate about all of this, and this was picked up on by a mythologist who wrote about ancient Egypt named Gerald Massey towards the, the end of the Victorian era. He, he, he lived uh, in London, as far as I'm aware, um, and talked about Sobek Nofru being this revivalist of this very ancient cult of what he referred to as the goddess of the seven stars, seven stars clearly being those of Ursa Major. Well, there was somebody that was picking up on these ideas and thinking, this is a great, um, great person. To have as an antagonist in uh, an Egyptian novel that he was planning, and that person was the Irish writer Bram Stoker, who, of course, we know from his more famous piece, Dracula. Tell us us about the book he wrote. Yeah, I mean, the book he wrote.
0: The
1: book he wrote um, was published in 1903 under the title "The Jewel of Seven Stars." Obviously, the Seven Stars being those of Ursa Major, and he has a British Egyptologist um, find the tomb of what he refers to as Queen Tera, but, you know, T-E-R-A, but she's very clearly a, a, um, a ruler, a pharaoh of Upper and Lower Egypt, and um, basically what happens is that um, the sarcophagus and coffin and mummy of uh, Queen Tera brought back to um, London. And uh, a series of strange events happen and uh, the Egyptologist uh, feels that, you know, this that 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 from the inscriptions that this particular female pharaoh wanted to be resurrected uh, in uh, in a land of the northern skies. In other words, Britain, and they then go off to Cornwall a uh, location which I've actually investigated and, and found it. It's on a place called The Lizard. It's a huge hotel that still exists to this day. Um, and they then do this
0: resurrection. But wait, wait, can you tell us just a, a, a little bit more about the hotel and its name? And exactly I can't, where I'll be honest, it is? I
1: can't remember. Um, it, it's I mean, I, I did have a whole chapter on this in the book, but eventually I thought I'm going too far. I've got to drop it. You did uh, drop
0: it because it, it's not in the book. No, I'm it's not. No, say, no, okay, it, go it's, ahead.
1: It's it's oh God. It, it's in one of the coves. Um, it'll come to me as as we as we talk. When it comes to you, bring but, it up. But but the thing was is I thought this is worth investigating. Um, it's somewhere that's got a cave right beneath it that was used for smuggling. It's got green rock on it. it, it it's exactly as Bram Stoker refers, and we know that this hotel is where a lot of the Uh, the celebrities of the Victorian age would go. This was just after the railway was created, allowing people uh, easy access um, to Western Cornwall for the first time. Um, But as I said, I mean, at some point I will get that chapter out and I will put it as a a separate article, I think, because, you know, some good research there. But anyway, cut long story short, and we don't want to spoil the whole thing for anybody that might want to read this book. It all goes wrong. And, what happens is that the daughter, the 18-year-old daughter of the Egyptologist, who had very clearly been gradually being overshadowed by Queen Tira, uh, eventually becomes her during this incredible ritual that they call the Great Experiment. And, you know, and that basically she vanishes off and, you know, Queen Tira is allowed to um, wander free in in, in the the modern world, and the book came out in 1903. And so shocking was it to the Edwardian audience that received it and read it that the publishers called Bram Stoker back in and said, "Bram, look, you know, you're going to have to change this for future editions. This is this is too much for people." So, in all subsequent editions, um, you know, the the the, um, the resurrection goes well. The evil queen is killed and um, and everybody lives happily ever after um, so if you want to read this book make sure you find the first edition it is out there you can read it uh, it is online so um, but the importance about this is that the storyline of the jewel of seven stars has been adapted for um, cinema cin- cinematic adaptions um, you know, into film, movies, etc. um, on various occasions. Uh, the most recent was 2017's The Mummy, starring Tom Cruise. Um, that's, um, ba- that's based on Bram Stoker's book, even though it's not acknowledged, although that's a bit naughty because a lot of people obviously realised that it clearly was. Um, but the best adaptation by far was 1980's The Awakening, um, which uh starred Charlton Heston um and and followed the storyline obviously now in a, a modern day context of you know nineteen eighty. Um, uh, a lot we of that have, was we
0: have, yeah. wait, we have to stop for a moment, Andrew. We've no come to the end of the free part of the show and we're going to go uh more deeply into the importance of the awakening and its relationship to Ram Stoker's novel in just a moment. Free Dreamlanders, thank you so much for being with us. Okay, let's get into The Awakening now. Uh, tell us a little bit more.
1: Yeah, The Awakening, um, as I said, came out in uh, 1980. Uh, it featured um, Charlton Heston as the main Egyptologist, um, Susanna York as his wife, um, Stephanie Symbolist as um, as the 18 year old uh, daughter, Margaret, who eventually is is overshadowed, taken over very gradually by um, the the you know, this Egyptian female pharaoh who in the film is called Queen Kara. Uh, Now, this is a very interesting um, change of name because it's very clear that the that the script writers of the film knew That Bram Stoker had based his character on Sobek Nofru because the throne name of Sobek Nofru um, is Sobek Kara, which means basically the car or soul of the sun god is within Sobek or is Sobek, basically, that's what that name means. Um, And also in the film, it talks about her reigning in 1800 BC, that's the exact time frame of. So there can be no doubt that it's based on on her. Um, and yeah, you know, at the end of this film, um, um, the, um, the, the the Egyptologist whose name is Matthew Corbeck um, once again raises uh, this 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 female pharaoh inside what is clearly meant to be the British Museum. Um, and it's at this point that you know he he assumes. That the mummy is actually going to come alive and you know become this this woman, but he then looks to his daughter who has transformed into this this, this Egyptian uh, woman and realizes that that's what's actually happening is its own his own daughter is being uh, overtaken by this this Egyptian female uh, pharaoh. Um, and I mean, I think the very last scene is is of her standing on, on the, the steps of the British Museum, uh, looking out over London. Uh, you know, at this world that she now finds herself within. Uh, and what's interesting is that in the book version of The Awakening by R. Chetwin Hayes, um, there is a huge, great cult already existing in the name of Queen Kara, and they're basically waiting outside for her. Uh, Because they knew that she would, you know, resurrect and that she would then, you know, lead the world quite literally. Uh, And I find this interesting because, you know, the the situation with Sobek Nofru is that, as you pointed out at the beginning of our interview, is that nobody really knows anything about her. And yet somehow she has been trying to get through. Um, I mean, There are various female pharaohs, let's name a few. You've got Hatshepsut, uh, you've got Nefertiti, uh, you've obviously got Cleopatra. um, And people don't really have many psychic experiences involving these uh, wonderful women of the past. But what got me into Sobek Nofru was the fact that people were having very strange dreams and psychic experiences to do with Sobet Nofru. In fact, that's how I really got into uh, investigating her during the 1980s. Uh, a friend and colleague of mine uh, started having dreams about her. Uh, he didn't get her full name. He just got the name Sarai, which basically means either son or daughter of Ra or Ray, the, the sun god. Um, and basically, he felt compelled to decorate an entire wall with an image of you know this this woman with some other egyptian figures around uh and to do a ritual um and the results of which are in my book the seventh sword which came out in the early 90s um and the thing was is that i wasn't there for this but graham uh yes my colleague graham phillips let's not beat about the bush um is that he came down to see me about a week after all of this occurred and you know he told me about these dreams and he, he said that this um this female pharaoh had um lived around 1800 bc and of course i went away looked it up and uh, there was only one female pharaoh at this time and it was Sobet Nofru. and this intrigued me because you know why her what you know what why this particular woman and across the years a number of other people have had similar experiences and they include the occultist and writer kenneth grant now, he wrote a series of uh, three separate non-fiction trilogies, which are today known as the Typhonian Trilogies, um, and they talk about um, Sobek Nofru in there as having been the revivalist of this ancient star cult involving the constellations of Draco, um, Ursa Major, and, uh, as I realised myself, Ursa Minor, and that... Uh, you know these involved not just sobek um but also this this sky figure who was seen as the mother of sobek who um was referred to by Gerald Massey as the great mother of time um and that these same figures were also associated in egypt with the god known as set he's the trickster god the the the, the brother of osiris who tricked osiris into going into a coffin and then nailing it up and throwing it into the Nile in theory to, to to kill Osiris, but we all know obviously that that you know Osiris was refound and um, then you know Set tried to kill him again by cutting him up into pieces, and Osiris's wife Isis finds all those pieces and puts them back together again. That's the the the, the, the legend that that's recorded down. Now the interesting thing is is that the reason why Kenneth Grant got into Sobekneferu is because of psychic experiences that one of the members of his magical group, which was known as the, the the new ISIS lodge in the mid 1950s had had where they were doing these scrying with mirrors and this Egyptian Royal female appeared. Um, And, you know, basically it became apparent that it was either um, Sobek Nofra herself or one of her incarnations. And that. somehow this triggered something within Kenneth Grant to focus his attention on her within his books and also to feature her in a very interesting novel by the, by the title of The Stellar Load, uh, which is a great book, very interesting, very weird book. It has very much uh, a sort of Cthulhu, Lovecraftian element to it as well. Um, and in here, once again, it's quite clear that, you know, we're talking about Sobek Nofru and that she herself is this powerful entity on the astral plane, which can appear to people in dreams and visions and also in physical form as well. Um, and that she is accessible. And of course, this brings us to the idea of, you know, why is this? I mean, and the only thing that I can think of is that the the funeral rites that Sobek Nofru underwent were different to those of normal pharaohs. And they may have even been incomplete because if she did commit ritual death, some kind of ancient suicide... She
0: um, died a conscious death. Yeah, I mean... Like it, my it, wife, j- just hold on a second. I, I'm, My mind is totally buzzing right now and i got to get a little in here because i think that people who die conscious deaths like this who are prepared for it in other words my wife Anne spent a lifetime preparing for this and when she died she died in an enlightened state and she continues on she left us with an avatar the white moth uh, which whenever it appears it it means it, it re- represents her p- presence in the physical world. She's not dead in the sense that she didn't forget her life. And I think we're talking about someone else. So, Nefru, who did the same thing and is still with us. I think that's exactly what we're talking about. And that there is a, a dark place between us and these entities which we in the in Tibetan Buddhism is called the bardo and when we look toward these entities we see them through a kind of dark screen and you have to be very much surrendered in yourself you have to be on a journey of enlightenment <clears throat> to see beyond the fear their presence evokes okay let's go on because i'm i'm so utterly fascinated <laughs> frankly andrew this is you know you've done Now, this is your 18th show on Dreamland, and there is not one of them that isn't brain bending. And this one is totally brain bending. And uh, when you if you don't mind going back to what you were saying, that's fine. Otherwise, I can move along with another question.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you talked about the bardo. Um, Obviously, this is something that is expanded in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But if we then switch to Egypt, you've got a very similar uh, situation in the pyramid texts, coffin texts, obviously their own Egyptian books of the dead. Um, and that's the fact that, you know, once you pass into, you know, the, the sort of state beyond death, you have to go through various trials and tribulations as you navigate something called the duat, uh, which is generally interpreted as meaning underworld, but, I, but that's not really a correct way of looking at it um it is similar to the bardo and obviously if you're able to get through that you then enter into the light um and that light allows you then to rise up um and connect with the milky way via orion uh, and then obviously eventually you enter into the, the the afterlife which is in the northern part of the sky the same area that sobek nofru was interested in uh, the area of um, Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, and particularly Draco. This is where the the, the stars were that were seen to, sh- to to shine, where the soul would become um, an act, basically a shining spirit, basically, um, where they would live in, in the hereafter. So I think that you know, every culture has got its own Bardo. Literally. We've all got our own. I've got my own personal one. I'm not sure what it is at the moment, but I'm sure I'll find out eventually. And the question then becomes, where is Sobek Nofru now?
0: Uh, It's quite clear
1: that she's not necessarily in the afterlife, that she's somewhere between there and here, and that she can communicate with people Now, where exactly we don't know but why is an interesting question because it could well be that because her entire story was suppressed she wants that to come out um i mean this was an important woman here i mean you know she didn't just reign for four years but she obviously reigned unofficially alongside her brother for another eight or nine years right um and, you know, she was clearly into some really interesting uh, religious ideas that involved the creation of this massive ritual complex that we now know as the Egyptian labyrinth, um, which Herodotus, around 450 BC, the, the father of history, according to Greek tradition, witnessed and said w- was more magnificent even than the Great Pyramids. So, I mean, this is what she created. and. She created this so that that people from priests and officials from all over of Egypt would come there to venerate their own local God um, as a form of Sobek, basically Sobek being the crocodile God. Um, and She created the first monotheism in Egypt, which obviously would be done again about 300, 400 years later by the pharaoh Akhenaten with his Artun faith, which we know probably went on to influence the monotheism of the, you know, the, the, the Judaic, um, you know, nation, you know, God, quite literally. Now I'm not therefore saying that she was the first person to create a monotheistic religion. I don't think she necessarily was, but I think what's important here is that she was doing something incredibly different and we should know about her and her story and that somehow She wants that story to be told. And even when I wrote the book, I felt her, well, I won't say her presence. I felt a presence behind me at times, which, you know, gave me the idea that she was leading me to write and research and investigate into certain areas. And often, you know, I would come up with with an intuitive idea and I'd check it out and find that it was absolutely true.
0: And you I know this you understand this is why we're talking about this book it's because the same thing happened to me exactly the same thing that the presence it, it, this is what I came to is this that there are presences that are still alive in in some way that we don't fully understand they're not they haven't disappeared into the kind of flux of death they're still coherent entities and Sebek, this pharaoh is one and she wants to be known again she wants us to evoke her now when i say that evoke her i ask you what that might mean to you it, you had these intuitive, you were taken on a journey by her. That was what those intuitions that turned out to be correct or li- were. I, I have had that many times with, with my wife who's behind me right now. Uh, the, uh, what does that mean? Because this is something we need to get through this time that we're in. And she's offering herself to help us, undoubtedly.
1: Well, I I think that uh, Sobek Nofru is open to mental sympathy in the sense that if you put your mind, you know, out there and call her to you, that somehow some aspect of her will be present. And what's so interesting is that... A number of these people that have had experiences with her, including myself, whenever, you know, she she is called and or named, as it were, strange things start happening. I mean, the, the, uh, an example of that was just very recently. I gave my first public lecture um, about her and the cameras just did the most strangest things and and changed the whole speed of my voice. Uh, Luckily, it was on two two separate cameras. Luckily, one worked uh, in a way which made me almost talk gibberish. Um, I mean, you know, this was at Megalithomania in in May. And my colleague, Hugh Newman, who was recording all this, said, I have never, ever had this happen before. And I cannot explain it, particularly as it only happened in one out of two of those cameras. Uh, The whole thing was, by the way, being live streamed as well. So. You know, this caused quite a, a a problem at the time, which had to be rectified afterwards. I mean, it's just things like that. Lights also went. You know, that the, the lights also started flickering uh, as we were talking about her as well. So, I mean, you know, maybe the us. Maybe maybe it's our own consciousness that, that that does this because of our belief in her. I don't know. But oh no,
0: I'm I'm way that past does... that down, Andrew. It's her. It's definitely. Something that wants to communicate through the medium of her, yeah her.
1: yeah um but that, that's it really, I mean, from my point of view I've written her her first ever biography now um I've done my piece um I mean quite clearly I'll honor her i' mean, got I've got a a little altar uh I've got a picture of her at the back of that, and you know I pay my respects to the spirits as everybody does um and That's it, really. And I mean, the most important thing is to get her story out there. I mean, she was literally the saviour of Egypt. She changed the destiny of Egypt. She probably changed the destiny of the world. Her story was suppressed in a patriarchal society, not only during her own age, but also, I think, during the 19th century, that when a lot of these Egyptologists started finding evidence of her existence they couldn't believe that a woman would be creating these incredible complexes like the Egyptian labyrinth um, in the Fayum. So instead allotted it purely to her father. Well, it must have all been put up by her father. She might have put a, a few cosmetic touches on on it at the end of it, but clearly it was nothing to do with her. Um, but I, I show in the book, it's very clearly to do with her. She was the one that transformed this whole complex, into the Egyptian labyrinth.
0: I would like to now shift gears and go forward into one of the most brain-bending... I, I keep saying that word. It's becoming a cliché in this show. I don't use it much, actually. Uh, but this show is exactly that. It's brain-bending because as we've talked, i realized that we're talking about a living being, not living in... The flesh as we know it. But you remember, I mean, I've seen actual uh, dead people manifest in physical form. So I know it's quite possible. And Leslie Kane, uh, my dear friend, uh, has uh, seen this happen in the seance of uh, Stuart Alexander in the UK. So it certainly is real. And to me, it means the dead are very much part of life. And here is this powerful being, probably by now so unbelievably conscious that she's got immense wealth to offer us. And she wants to be seen and heard. That gets me down a long path to the Gnostics and Poimandris, the shepherd of men, and their relationship to uh, to uh, this to Sobek Neferu and this energy.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, th- th- this is an area of the book which, I'm going to be honest, I-, I didn't need to put in there, but I, I found it so fascinating. I thought, I've just got to put this in there. And so that's glad you did. Thank you. Uh, I mean, it's strange. Other people have mentioned this as well. Um, and obviously we know about the hermetic tradition. The hermetic tradition uh, originates in in Egypt, in Greco, um, uh, you know, Roman times in Egypt, probably about the third or fourth century uh, B.C., um, but then is carried out of Egypt into Syria and also into uh, southeastern Anatolia, in particular the great center of Haran, um, the city of the Sabians, city of the Chaldeans, where it was then disseminated in book form uh, and would eventually, via the Arab peoples, uh, reach places like Italy at the time of the Renaissance, where it was then translated uh, into uh, Latin. Um, And, I mean, obviously this is some of the, 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 the most incredible wisdom teachings that have ever been written by humankind. Um, And the stories talk about this figure by the name of Hermes Trismegistus, the the third, sorry, the thrice great Hermes. Um, And he's the one that that is seen to be the source of all of this material, uh, hence the term Hermetic or the, the Corpus Hermeticum. But what's so interesting is that he himself is said to have gained this information from a mysterious figure that seems to be supernatural in nature, by the name of Pomandris, um, and you know there's a whole book that's actually written, you know, under this name that is Pomandris teaching uh, Hermes about this these wisdom teachings. So who is Pomandris? Well, what's so interesting is that it's very clear that Pomandris is Armonemet the third who is Sobek Nofru's father. Um, And this can quite easily be shown today from various inscriptions on a temple at a place called Medanit Mahdi, which is on the south side of the Great Lake uh, in the Fayum. And it talks about Pomandris, and there's actually a statue that was found, which I show a picture of in the book, that is clearly both Pomandris and Amenemhet third, And I find this intriguing. I mean, clearly it's not Sobek Nofru herself, but you wonder whether she also features within these wisdom teachings, but perhaps under another name. Um, it's something which I think should be investigated further. I mean, there are various female alchemists that are talked about who have names such as Cleopatra. Um, it's possible that they embody some memory of Sobek Neferu, but even if they don't, the fact that the whole concept of Pomandris as the source of this hermetic tradition coming from, uh, from uh, Sobek Neferu's father, I think is quite
0: extraordinary. I think it's amazing. And I think that we, when we look at, uh, I mean, I've been studying Gnosticism for many years and i'm studying it in fact right now with my the tuesday night reading group i go to every week up in malibu and we've not come across this relationship before but i'm certainly going to bring it up in the meeting and see what we can find because there are some real serious experts in that meeting and if anyone can find more detail it'll be them um and uh Uh, so i'll bring this up with them but the important thing is here to understand the well uh, another thing that is brought up in jeff kreipel's book superhumanities which is the idea of the two as one being so fundamental to the uh, an understanding of the real empowerment of the soul and of course the two as one is the final card of the of the tarot of Marseille, the 21st card the card of the world and in the middle of that the four beasts of the sphinx are in the four corners of that card and in the middle is rising ascending a being which has female breasts and covered genitalia because it's male genitalia it is two who have become one and maybe that's what we're seeing between sobic nefru and her father
1: okay um there's an interesting link here with this whole story with that particular card um the version of it um that appears in the rider white pack um which was um oh I, know, I, I can't remember. I think the name is in is in the book but the 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 the, the, the female artist that, that drew it based the character in the middle which is clearly female in the rider white pack on a lady, a very talented lady by the name of Florence Farr. Now, Florence Farr was an actress, um, a writer, a musician. Um, she produced various plays in the late Victorian uh, period in London, uh, particularly at the Lyceum, um, and which is where Bram Stoker was also working as, as a manager at the same time. And um, the you know that Florence Farr she was heavily into ancient Egyptian. she did a book called egyptian magic and her inspiration came from uh connecting with a uh, a mummy and a coffin in the british museum um and she found herself in touch with this entity that she referred to as the egyptian contact it was an egyptian royal female um and this started to give them instructions about, um, you know, creating a new magical group and moving forward. And that group came to be known as the Sphere, and it was like an inner group of the much larger order known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Um, and this was all going well, but various members of the Golden Dawn who did not agree with the ideas of the Egyptian adept started believing that this entity was taking over Florence Far and that was, you know, quite literally evil in, in, in their, their opinion. I mean, it wasn't. It was, you know, simply an Egyptian uh, spirit. Um, and they caused obviously problems for Florence Farr. And eventually she had to change everything within the group. She she, she changed the Egyptian um, adept into a male. She also um, changed the imagery just to a Holy Grail instead of this female form. Um, and that was that's that basic story. But what's so interesting is that Florence Farr would appear to be the role model for Margaret, the daughter of the Egyptologist that finds the, um, the Queen Tira's tomb in the Jewel of Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. In other words, Bram Stoker was aware of this entire episode and thought that Florence Farr would be the perfect role model for this woman who is taken over by this Egyptian royal female spirit in The Jewel of Seven Stars. Um, and also, just to add to that, is that the, the group would appear to have had a piece of a mummy that they used to link with the Egyptian adept that eventually found its way into the ownership of the occultist Kenneth Grant. And it was this that they used to communicate with Sobek
0: Nofru. So, you know, the, all of this is linked together. It's fascinating, isn't it? The way the links have kind of come out in, in the story that you and I are, are weaving with this interview. It's a really good interview Andrew you're you're terrific at this but you know you, you don't often meet anyone as deeply involved in these subjects as I am and, and, and as aware of a lot of the secret material so we we're, we're, we're really singing together I think now uh, let's let's go a little deeper though because before we started the show We were chatting just before we began about people who have had the experience of someone uh, trying to take them out of their body and replace them with someone else. Uh, And I I mentioned that in my book, Them, uh, there is an incident of this described uh, where uh, uh, Drew, Drew Gregory, who's also been on dreamland to discuss this uh describes his an attempt then it felt very evil to him and i wonder if it is always an evil thing if perhaps there could be situations in which this happens but it's it's something uh useful or positive for both souls our bodies linked always to the same soul or is there some kind of a message from this whole story of uh sebek nefru's continued presence in the world that suggests otherwise i mean obviously this is again this all sort of ties in
1: with what we were talking about as you quite rightly said before we went onto the air um and i might as well tell the story that i told you and that was uh, a good few years ago um I knew a lady very normal she she uh, worked in a hospital um and she um encountered a a, a figure um yeah human figure uh, that would that would come in and and um you yeah, know seemed to take far too much interest in i mean he wasn't a young gentleman he was he was an elderly gentleman um and he was asking very strange questions of her Uh, which she just thought it was obviously just very peculiar. Um, But then on one particular night, um, she found his presence in her room, trying to pull her soul out of her body and replace it with him. And she had an incredible struggle to try and not lose her own position within her own body. Um, eventually she won and the figure then withdrew, you know, obviously in in some kind of psychic form, Um, and she never saw this this person again. And what she became convinced of is that this person, for whatever reason, was, um, you know, elderly, perhaps they they were ill, and that they wanted somebody else's body in which to plant their own soul and remove that person's soul and just inhabit it. Um, and this, I mean, she was a, she, you know, I mean, her her first first name was Anne. I, I better not give her her second name. Um, she, she was a very normal woman. She was quite psychic. I, I will point that out. Um, but I have no reason whatsoever to doubt her word. And of course, this brings into, you know, the the question of of the morality of this. I mean, quite clearly, let's assume that that's wrong that you you know that you shouldn't be doing that even if you have some kind of incredible paranormal power because it's selfish it's obviously depriving somebody else of their own life Um, but obviously we also know about suppose walk walk walkings you know the idea that you know extraterrestrials can take over somebody's consciousness um, and literally uh, assume control of their soul either consciously or unconsciously Um, But all of this then brings into question is what happens at the point of our death I mean it's like all of us I mean would we like to continue to live when we think we are going to die and I suppose the answer has to be yes I mean none of us really want to die I don't think um I mean unless we were we we're in such pain that you know quite clearly we we, we cannot carry on um but I suppose that the laws of, of karma and physics tell us that we live in this physical body. You know, we have to leave it at some point and we hope that we can navigate the the, the bardo, um, the bardos that, that we were, were talking about and that eventually we can either reincarnate or go on into the afterlife. Um, and that's all we can say. But as I also was talking to you about before we went on the air, I mean, I suppose it is like, your car you know your car goes on as long as it goes on you know we we replace parts um but eventually it gets so old that we can't replace those parts anymore and we have to abandon it uh, and get a new one and i suppose that the best way of looking at life is that our bodies are our cars our vehicle and that you know we will have to get a new car or vehicle eventually and that the best thing to do is to believe that, is to assume that reincarnation, life after death, is real um, and to accept that and move into our later years with that premise in mind.
0: I think that's vitally important, especially because we live in a society that has become flooded with so much material wealth that we have become anesthetized to our souls and even when we weren't anesthetized to our souls let's say in the middle ages we were very confused about all of this but it's not necessarily true that we're so confused now there is a duat or a bardo and it is possible to pass through it there are different states of the afterlife some of which uh uh, are, are states we would very much want to be in and there are states that where we go beyond self entirely and there are states like the state that uh so neferu is apparently in where the self is preserved in a sacred act that enables it to penetrate into the world of the living and to offer them set uh, support and help reflected in the way the Gnostics uh, captured her teaching and in my life of course the way Anne is she's in the same state many people are in that state how do we move forward in an effort to create a coherent working bridge between the living and the dead, because I think that that might be something that someone like Sobek Nefru is coming back to help us do. Oh, I think just two words,
1: mental sympathy. In other words, you know, we have to acknowledge that they are there and that bridge then fades away in the sense that they are always there. They are always with us. And that they're accessible you know through mental sympathy and that can be you know whether it be in dreams whether it be in visions or whether it be through meditation um you know we can draw those spirits i mean you know what myself and and my 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 friends do when we're working on a particular subject is you know we will go to a place like gobekli tepe or Karahan tepe or somewhere like this um during meditation and we will look for somebody to 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 tell us information about it some kind of spirit form and often this happens and you know they will give us information which we don't have in our conscious mind and afterwards we'll check out the information and very very often it will check out Uh, and this gives us ideas just simply that ideas to move forward with certain research you know projects So who is it that we contact? I mean, is it simply an aspect of our our own mind or is it possible that there is some kind of collective unconscious, what I call the entanglement of all or the mind of God? Note that word, the mind of God, not God himself, that we can connect with, that has individual personality and those individual personality are the souls of those who have departed um and still exist as wisdom givers on the you know on the astral plane um i mean you know these ideas let's say were looked at by people like edgar cayce you know the the great american psychic i mean you know he obviously would go into a trance um and you know would uh, would, would would then prescribe uh, medical remedies to patients uh, would also tell them uh, past lives and things like that, and perhaps, you know, what they're to do in their life based on those past lives. And, you know, he, during these sessions, wouldn't remember anything other than one thing that he saw on a few occasions. And that was that he would find himself entering into this library and there would be a librarian there. And that librarian would go to a particular book and hand that book to him and it would be like he absorbed that knowledge and then eventually he would wake up and find that he'd given the, uh, the reading, the, med- the remedy or whatever it was. In other words, it was like he had to go into this Akashic records to obtain this information and be given to it, given it by a spirit form, an individual personality, which somehow existed within this realm. Now, okay, as to our interpretation of this, you know, whether you see this as a pure aspect of our own mind that we need to use an anthropomorphic form to communicate or whether these spirits have their original form, I think is up to the individual in all honesty. But for me, you know, Sobek Nofru is out there. You know, she can be communicated with. Her story is being told. Um, she is a powerful lady, um, and you know, yeah. I mean, Evoca certainly remember her. I mean, she's got her own feast day now, which is July the twenty first. I mean, it's there online. Look it up. Um, you know, when that comes around, light a candle for her, do a little ritual, watch the Awakening, read the Jewel of Seven Stars, and clearly have a little read of my book. <laughs>
0: Andrew, that's a great place to stop. Um, And, you know, something that I'm going to leave us with, something that Anne said to me right after she passed away, just immediately after we got into contact, and it, it was one of the first things she said, and it's very important. She said, I'm not Anne anymore, but I will always be Anne for you. And I think that Sobek Neferu is here for us in exactly the same way bringing with her wisdom of immense value and so let's first thank andrew collins for bringing her to us thank her for coming to us and remember her july the 21st of every year from now uh, on 23rd yeah july the 23rd of every year from now on this is another female presence who's stepping forward in our time of great need and great change. welcomed to the age of Aquarius, the end of the patriarchy and the beginning of something truly new. Absolutely. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizel. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.